Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Friday Erev Shabbos. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. song for my dear friend, one of my favorites, posed by Yitzi Walden. Mi bikui mkho, malikinu, sohoi fiya. Thank you. 
so much.
دنگ سای خواب کش دیبردا
in the AM. The Yerushalayim, that's the Chevra from the Chai CD. Uh, great selection from the brand new album. Yitzchak Fuchs had Nigun Shimshon. You heard Mimkomcha, Yehuda Green, and Yaakov Shweki. Uh, in the middle of those two was Shlomo Kalbach with Mimkomo from the Wake Up World LP. And Regesh Modani opening things up. And we say good morning. It's Friday on this August 9th, the 3rd of Elul. It's Erev Shabbos Parsha Shoftin. The year is... 5773 and uh, the way the excitement is building for what's going to be happening next week at JM and the AM boy oh boy simply unbelievable it seems to be at least in our circles it's the talk of the town like <laughs> i guess that makes sense that we're that wherever uh, the seagulls are going it's what everybody's talking about uh, the uh, flight to uh, israel with nefesh benefesh takes place monday we have this unique concept of a broadcasting at JFK with the Nefesh Benefesh staff as they prepare for the flight on Monday morning. And then Tuesday's show will emanate from Ben Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv uh, in the midst of the hoopla and celebration of yet another plane filled with the Jewish heroes, Olim Chadashim, brand new immigrants to Israel from North America. Uh, it should be amazing. The whole thing should be unbelievable. And it all starts Monday morning at 6 a.m. Make sure you're here. Plenty to do before then, by the way. We have uh, great programming on Saturday night, great programming on Sunday, of course, great programming today. Weekly update is coming up with Malcolm Holmline at 7.40 this morning. We can finally ask him about the prisoner release and peace process and all that stuff. We'll do that coming up at 7.40. And uh, we'll wrap up JM and the AM at 9 o'clock this morning, uh, as we always do on a Friday. But then it just all begins, all day long amazing Erev Shabbos selections on the stream at jmandtheam.org you don't want to miss any of it make sure if you're at your desk in your car uh, at home preparing I know a lot of people the second they get home at 1, 2, 3 o'clock this afternoon they're going to flip on that computer and just uh, get ready to roll uh, with an Erev Shabbos preparation with us with the Erev Shabbos music stream candle lighting is 744 here in the New, New Jersey New York area, 744, 75 degrees, 93% humidity, winds are south at 10 miles an hour. Thunderstorms today with a high temperature of 81. Uh, then tonight, scattered thunderstorms, a low 71, partly cloudy for tomorrow with a high of 86 degrees. 88 in Yerushalayim, 90.1 in Tel Aviv, 86 in Haifa, 100 in Eilat. Up in Guilford, New York, our friends at Camp Masora have got 68 degrees and we're at 75 here in Jersey City. As we say good morning at JM in the AM. Oh, we gotta do our Elul chauffeur blowing, which we did very late yesterday. Gotta do it on time at 7.30 this morning. So we hope to do that. Yeah, we're, get, we're getting into the groove of an Arab shop, of a, of a, um, of a, uh, Chodesh Elul chauffeur blowing on a, a daily basis here at JM in the AM. Uh, the Maccabees are next. Keep it right here at 91.1 FM, 90.1 FM in the Catskills, 91.9 FM in Rockland County, and around the world on the web, jmtheam.org. Sometimes in my tears I drown, but I never let it get me down. 
Oh, see. 
Live version of Bowie Vishalom done by Yaakov Shweki, of course. Miami with Achash Shawalti. We did that for those who love uh, musical selections from David Hashem Ori. David Gabe with Omar David. An hour a day done by Menachem Herman and the Maccabees had one day here at JM in the AM. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WNYX Montgomery, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, around the world in the web at jmnam.org. Galitzal in the background. News from Israel coming up. And uh, our weekly update, which will include a lot of news, coming up 40 minutes from now. Malcolm Holmline will discuss the events of the last couple of weeks with us right here at JM in the AM. Should be interesting with all the... Uh, Interesting stuff that's happening in this world of ours. Monday, we travel to Israel with Nefesh Benefesh, a much-talked-about journey. Seems everywhere I go, folks are discussing the uh, the privilege we're having of traveling with hundreds of Jewish heroes to Israel this Monday. JFK, Monday morning, and then Ben Gurion Airport, Tuesday morning, for your JM and AM shows. Looking forward to an amazing broadcast week from Israel and this unique concept, which begins on Monday morning, starting at 6 a.m. Hey, do we have news from Israel coming up? I certainly hope so. Erev Shabbos Parsha Shoftim with candle lighting time at 7.44 on this Erev Shabbos. And usually we, in fact, do have a <laughs> a newscast from uh, Galitzal. And I guess now, finally, it's going to begin. <laughs> thunderstorms today with a high temperature of 81. Scattered thunderstorms tonight with a low 71. Tomorrow, partly cloudy. High temperature, 86. We're at 88 in Yerushalayim. Boy, oh boy, those are numbers to look forward to. 90 in Tel Aviv, 86 in Haifa, and 100 in Eilat. Up in Guilford, New York, a big good morning to Camp Masora, where they have 68 degrees, and we're at 75 here in Jersey City as we get set to uh, enter hour number two of our Friday morning broadcast. Hey, anybody know what's going on with our newscast? Is this happening or not? Is there a 2 p.m. newscast on Gali Tzal today? Well, I guess, uh, I guess I don't know what's happening. I will move into hour number two of our program here, unless our news starts in the next minute or so, or in the next uh, few seconds. And uh does not look like, it, in fact, that's happening. Uh, Neshama program, Norman Laster, coming up next. Plenty more, including our weekly update at 7.40 this morning with Malcolm Holmline. Keep it right here at JM in the AM.
Liegt unser Kreuz. 
Well, Kent, the Yitzhak Mayer health guy, and Yitzhak Perlman, you can't go wrong with that combination. Unbelievable. Uh, my thanks to Norman Laster, another great edition of the Neshama program, this one featuring uh, Eternal Echoes. An incredible collection of music from those two giants. 28 minutes after 7 o'clock, it's Friday at JM in the AM, August the 9th, the 3rd of Elul. Good morning, it's Erev Shabbos. Parsha Shoftim with candlelighting time at 7.44 on this era of Shabbos. Many synagogues begin earlier. Make sure you know when things start where you are. 7.44, your official candlelighting time. Thunderstorms with a high of 81. We're at 75 degrees right now. Malcolm Holmline will join us. Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. We'll discuss the weekly update. Try to get through as many news items as possible from the last couple of weeks. A reminder, Saturday night, Siegel tomorrow night with Avrami. Reminder, an encore presentation of Table for Two coming up at 9 a.m. Eastern Time with Naomi Nachman on our stream at jmnam.org. Followed by an incredible day of Erev Shabbos selections. So many people, thank goodness, are taking advantage of the fact that Mark Zamek prepares each and every week an amazing Erev Shabbos mix of music. And when they get to the office, or if they're driving home in the car, or if they uh, get home and want to just permeate the house with great Erev Shabbos songs, uh, in the spirit of Shabbos, of starting Shabbos properly, uh, people just put it on. No matter where they are, they just put it on and let it roll. And I thank Mark Zamek, and I thank all of you for uh, tuning in. I, know, I knew from the very beginning it would be one of the hottest things on our stream, and sure enough, it has proven so. So make sure to be tuned in at some point today to our incredible Erev Shabbos music stream. Monday's a big day for JM in the AM as we head to Israel with Nefesh Benefesh with hundreds of Jewish heroes, an amazing group of brand new Olim, Chadashim, brand new immigrants to Israel from North America. We'll be on the plane Monday, but not before we do Monday show from JFK Airport. No joke, we'll be there live Monday morning. We'll be in Ben Gurion Airport on Tuesday with the big arrival of everybody. And then Wednesday and Thursday programming from Israel from uh, other great institutions, Shalvim or Mayor Bracha. We have a whole bunch of uh, great uh, programs that will emanate from Israel next week. Make sure to be tuned in. Everyone is at least, well, yeah, I guess, I guess it's natural that in our circles, <laughs> everybody's talking about this trip. I hope outside of our circles, people are talking about it as well. We are getting tremendous reaction and a lot of jealousy that, uh, uh, is being, uh, a good jealousy. That's right. Uh, that's being fostered because uh, uh, folks obviously want to be on the Nefesh Benefesh flight and be moving to Israel, and if not, in the, at the minimum, they would love to be going to experience the whole scene. So Monday we get the opportunity to do it, and it should be a tremendous inspiration for all. Malcolm Holmline coming up in 10 minutes, or by Yudin coming up at 8.15 with Parsha Shoftim. Our Elul chauffeur blowing. We try to do it Monday through Friday at 7.30 in the morning. So our next selection will be preceded by our Elul chauffeur blowing. Whoa. By our Elul chauffeur blowing here at JM in the AM.
The Shalom Aleichem. Baruch Levine before that with Anam Zmiros. You heard Lipa and Yigdal. Friday morning, JM in the AM. Special shout out to our friends at Achenu Day Camp. I saw both Rabbi Chesser and uh, Rabbi Pomerantz very late last night. They ran an incredible trip yesterday for some very, very happy campers. And uh, saw them very, very late. And as usual, they're doing an amazing job this summer, as they always do. So a big uh, hello and shout-out to them. Friday morning on this August 9th, the 3rd of Elul. Monday, we head to Israel with Nefesh Benefesh. We have never been on one of their flights before. Uh, not only will we be on the flight, but Monday morning, we're going to broadcast live from JFK as the Nefesh Benefesh staff is getting ready for the trip. And then Tuesday, we'll, our radio show will emanate from Ben Gurion Airport from the um, welcome ceremony at Ben-Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv. Uh, that's how our trip to Israel is going to start next week. Unbelievable. Only drawback of the Israel trip next week is that I'll be off on Friday, so we will uh, skip next week in terms of our weekly update, but it will, Bezrat Hashem, return two weeks from today. Uh, between Malcolm's schedule and my schedule, it's been a little choppy this summer, but we will we'll get back on track in a minute and hopefully get back on track uh, two weeks from now as well. I want to thank our friends at JewishWorldReview.com who continue to enthusiastically recommend to their readers uh, that they should be clicking on the jmnam.org website and listening in to our amazing 24-hour stream. Thank you, JewishWorldReview.com. They have amazing articles this week. I uh, especially enjoyed the Rabbi Wine article they posted and the Caroline Glick article that I might cite this morning that uh, they posted as well. Check it out. You'll see how you have thousands of offerings, and they do. An amazing job. The Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations Fund has announced the launch of a gala dinner to celebrate five decades of leadership and achievement that they have made to the community. The dinner is scheduled for Tuesday, October the 15th at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City. Malcolm has mentioned this dinner already to our audience. Those of you who would like to place reservations is a very easy email address. We could be in touch 
with the Dinner Planning Committee. Gala 2013 at conferenceofpresidents.org. Again, that's Gala 2013 at conferenceofpresidents.org. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update here at JM and the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Thank you. It's good to be back with you. Plans, uh, plans for the dinner, I hope, are going well. Actually, going very well, and it's the first dinner we've done in 20 years, and we'll honor all the chairmen over this period, people who've really devoted themselves to the community and done so much, and uh, God willing, it'll be 20 years before the next dinner. <laughs> People will have one opportunity in two decades. You know, there are a lot of organizations that like to follow your model, you know? (laughs) A dinner every 20 years. What are these rumors that I'm presenting you with your big tribute that night? Any truth to that? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) I I guess we'll have to check the rumors out. I have a way of making you speechless sometimes, huh? Yes. Unbelievable. A lot of folks in this audience, Malcolm, as you can imagine, I'm sure, look, you know the different audiences that you address. And you know the general makeup of the people in this audience. And a lot of people are quite unhappy with what the Prime Minister of Israel has done to quote-unquote restart the peace process. And, of course, the biggest gesture, maybe the only one you could tell us, uh, was this agreement to a prisoner release. So, number one, has the prisoner release already taken place? And number two, much more importantly, why do you think the Prime Minister had to make this move? The release hasn't taken place, and it will take place only over an extended period uh, to see whether the Palestinians actually uh, undertake reciprocal moves and whether they live up to their commitment to uh, that they've made to the Secretary of State and to joining the, quote, process. Uh, it's not just uh, uh, some people. I think a majority of people in Israel have expressed reservations on the specific uh, gesture and because some of those who were, who were released or planned to be released are Israeli Arabs who committed crimes, and this sends a particular message that if you're including Israeli Arabs, are you putting them under uh, the theoretical representation of the Palestinian Authority? Second, uh, there are many with blood on their hands, people responsible for the killings of people, which was a principle that was adhered to at, at one time, but it's been violated in past agreements. And the uh, the question of Israel always making the gestures and always having the burden, and with the question, and uh, we had a meeting yesterday with officials in Washington and, and discussed these issues uh, uh, very openly and, and uh, laid out the concerns that I think many people have, uh, and they know it, and they understand the, the concern, and, and Obviously, the Prime Minister made a decision, and I saw him in Israel uh, recently, but before the announcement of the prisoner deal, just before it. And he is committed to trying to see the process, and he can't be pictured as the one who has blocked it. With the threat of uh, action at the U.N. General Assembly coming up in just a few weeks in, uh, in September, the threat of the European boycotts, the threats of the other gesture, which to many people may seem insignificant, are in fact very significant and the further isolation the uh, augmentation of the delegitimization campaign there are many things that are tied to uh, the, the calculus of the prime minister's decision uh, and you know time will again judge the wisdom or lack of wisdom of, of any particular move but the 
uh, the polls show that the Israelis do want to have peace and do want the process to succeed. They don't, they are skeptical of the other side, just as the the other side seems people when polled uh, expressed a similar skepticism. Right. I mean, if not for the distance or the very short distance to the UN General Assembly, do you think if it was a different time of year, it would have been handled differently? It certainly is uh, a pressure point. It, and again, people dismiss the UN. It's not to be dismissed. The, the, the recognition by perhaps 63 agencies, and you know automatically there is a majority for any Palestinian initiative uh, would have implications, and and it is the Palestinian direction. Certainly, Abbas has appeared to to prefer and to have followed a path which would not involve negotiations, but would be unilateral moves, like he did at the United Nations, going to the International Criminal Court, many other things that he would do unilaterally. And if he went around the world, he gets recognition from the vast majority of the countries of the world. So, I think. Um, uh, the timing is important. It, it's not the single calculation that would drive the prime minister making the deal. I do think he wanted to show that Israel was prepared to, to take the steps necessary to make the peace talks possible. I'm sure he was encouraged to do it. He did say that he felt the United States was fair and that, uh, that there was no ultimatum given to Israel to say, you either do this. Well, for some people that makes it even worse, but all right. Uh, look, you've had experience with everybody on the, from the political left to the political right, everybody in between in Israel. Do you think there's a level of discomfort from everybody when it comes to a move like this, or some people are really happy about the prime minister's decision? No, nobody's happy about, well, I can't say nobody. It's right. Certainly a very distinct minority might be... Um, uh, so there's a level of discomfort that, among everybody. Even those who, who, who want to see the process move forward, and even those who may be advocates, uh, very strong advocates for, for the negotiations, uh, I have a feeling in their stomachs that when they see this, they see the family's reactions, when they know what these people did, and know that a certain percentage will always be recidivist, will always come yeah. back and again engage in, in uh, terrorism, as we saw already with those released for Gilad Shalit. Yep. And you remember, there was strong opposition at that time also. Yeah. And if they don't go ahead and commit crimes, they'll certainly encourage others to do so. Right. Um, the, um, the, did any of this catch you by surprise? Because it seemed to us, those who just, you know, read the news and observe it, that it sort of came out of nowhere, just like this new peace process seemed to really come out of nowhere. You being an insider, did you did you see all these small steps being taken to get to this point where they're literally at the table again? Well, I saw the six trips, uh, five or six trips before the release of, uh, of Secretary Kerry. We saw a singular commitment to this and to initiating the process, uh, but which really hasn't begun. We've only seen the preliminaries to the process uh, at this point. Uh, and I knew, knew that Netanyahu never wants Israel to be the one that they point to and put, puts the, uh, carries the burden of blame and responsibility in, in, in these kind of uh, situations, although when it comes to violating security and other considerations, he has, and, and I will tell you that he was very tough on this. This wasn't just a simple move where one day he decides to give uh, a, a, this large number, 104 prisoners. There were very tough discussions and, and back and forth before this was arrived at and that, and that it wasn't done at once and it wasn't done 
preliminary to the negotiations. It's only concurrent with the negotiations. Uh, And so not violating what he said, that there would be no preconditions, uh, this will be done only during the course of the negotiations. So I did know some of these things. I did not know that 104 prisoners would be part of the equation. There seems to be a lot of opposition. Maybe a lot is the wrong word. Certainly question marks about Martin Indyk's um, uh, participation in all of this, in the process, in the talks, etc. If that's the case, that there's been some, you know, some significant vocal opposition, how did he get the job back? Like, how did he sneak back into the picture? <laughs> well, I don't think he snuck back. He's uh, <laughs> been very involved. He's vice president of the Brookings Institution. Uh, he's written a lot on this. He's been involved uh, all along in international affairs in the Washington scene. Uh, there were other candidates who, to whom people objected, and I think he was the most, uh, probably the most acceptable. Uh, and it, it, this is also a matter of chemistry. When, when secretaries, others, got presidents appoint people, they often, it, it's somebody that they've worked with in the past that they knew, that they had some interaction with. Uh, so I know both sides have expressed reservations about him actually participating in the negotiations. Uh, I think he will be going to Israel in the next couple of days and meeting with both the PA and Prime Minister Netanyahu. I think that he will play a role not to dictate but to facilitate to be an ongoing presence for the secretary. But uh, And I think that his role is, is in some places being exaggerated. So we will have to see how it plays out. So for those who are questionable about, uh, or skeptical rather, about his participation, it may not be as much as we think. Um, in terms of your personal reaction, I would guess that uh, that privately you've said, you know, obviously, whatever you want to say regarding the situation, but publicly there's no reason to say anything other than hopefully he could advance the process, right? Not subject to, to Senate approval. It's not something on which right. you have a vote. A uh, secretary can appoint who he wants. Uh, I've known Martin for a long time. Uh, um, we've had our differences, but... Um, this is a decision of, of the secretary, and the parties will decide how they will relate and will judge by what he does. There were other candidates I think that people might have found more objectionable. I think there were right. you know, always options. You have to look at the, the spectrum to see who's best. Right. Uh, earlier in this conversation, you, you used the words European boycott. So, so you got to explain to what extent that is and what it means practically. And secondly, it does seem, again, to those who observe the news, that the European-Israeli relationship, as shaky as it's always been, has been even shakier over the last year or so. Why is that? That's a really good question because people tend to dismiss the gestures or these decisions by the EU, for instance, regarding products uh, on the West Bank, or and in this case, it's about anybody receiving money uh, or, or, uh, from the EU, only from the EU, not from its member states, but this is directly from the EU, and this amounts to a lot of money in and of itself for grants, let's say for research, for health, for other things, which impacts many institutions and uh, and even businesses. Uh, if they have a presence in the West Bank, in other words, put money into it, they will not be eligible. And one of the companies that's always cited is SodaStream, not because they right. receive money, but because they have a, a huge presence in Ma'ala Adumim, right. 
but it means that thousands of the Palestinians are going to lose their jobs if SodaStream closes the job, closes their uh, factory, and that's w- the hypocrisy of these moves. Not only is it discriminatory and and selective, only directed at Israel. They don't direct it in any other quote disputed area. Secondly, it it it, uh, it blanket affects people who are engaged in health research and doing positive things, and that benefit both Israelis and Arabs, and that they're Arabs who, who work, the thousands and thousands of them, who will be impacted and put out of work. And in SodaStream, they make an equivalent salary. Israelis and Arabs make the same amount of money, and it's four or five times what they would make in any other job that they would get in the PA, in the, within the, the Palestinian Authority. Their businesses don't pay. They, they make uh, certainly a far lower uh, level of uh, standard than in Israel. So the the hypocrisy on the surface of, of this move, but it is serious because it could be a first step. And it's part of the delegitimization campaign, part of the isolation campaign, and the you know, they reject the term of a boycott, but in fact that I use that term deliberately because it is in fact a boycott. We're looking at how the anti boycott legislation here would affect any companies that, that in fact abide by uh, this uh, the, uh, European companies who, who, who implement or uh, try to implement this kind of restrictive practice, uh, which we believe is a violation of American anti-boycott law. So all this is the practical aspect of it. Why do you think, I don't know, psychologically or philosophically, we've gotten to this point between Europe and Israel? First of all, it is psychological and it, 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 because it's of the isolation. It is practical because the cost that could be involved, right. Israelis, uh, Israeli institutions, and others get many millions of dollars in these, uh, or, and including R and D, research and development funding. Uh, so many people will be could be could be impacted. But it's the message to the world that here you have the European Union silent in the face of persecution of thousands and thousands of Christians, of the violations of human rights everywhere, not able to take a stand on Syria, but they can find the time and the energy and the dedication to go after the, the uh, situation that they find so objectionable in the, in the West Bank, where, thank God, nobody's been killed and nobody's persecuted, and whatever differences they may have and whatever violations they may think, it pales in comparison to hundreds of other situations where they have not undertaken this action. And it can be the first step. This is something that gets picked up, that gets expanded, that individual countries are talking it. And I have to say that Secretary Kerry and others have gone to Europe to fight it and to to speak against it. Uh, and I think you will see more on that effort. This is certainly something the United States government and Canada and others have rejected and spoken out uh, against. It is a serious matter. I, I, I am always surprised by how little regard uh, American Jewish audiences have for the BDS movement, boycott, divestment, and sanctions. I don't even know what it is. And yet it's being implemented, including the United States. When we see these entertainers not going to Israel, when we see cultural um, uh, 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 sectors, the unions, the labor churches, others, all being infected by this disease, and it is not something to be dismissed. Yeah, uh, that's why I'm proud to say for the first time in a long time we're actually uh, thanking those uh, on the show for those uh, you know who go and perform and spend time in Israel and tell the world that they are not 
ready to uh, cave into the boycott calls. Uh, it's uh, two minutes after 8 o'clock, and this is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WNYX Montgomery. Rockland County at 91.9 FM, around the world on the web at jmnam.org. Malcolm Holmline is with us, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Weekly update today and two weeks from today, next week with the uh, Israel trip. We will not be doing the uh, weekly update. The um, What do you make of the whole uh, Putin, uh, Obama, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 a cool relationship in light of the Snowden episode? I would assume that this is not all about Snowden and that this is uh, really just a, uh, a highlight of a deeper rift between the two of them. Uh, I do believe, and I've talked on the show for a long time about the uh, impact of the Soviet-U.S. Uh, relationship on particular issues. We see the actions of Putin in countries like Syria, where he's still backing Assad, where he provided the Akhnut, these advanced missiles that Israel had to take out, and uh, there are still some, some left, or his um, threats to sell these uh, very advanced S-300 anti-aircraft systems, um, the presence of, the, of their ships that the uh, the situation in Syria is not simply Assad versus the rebels. It's seven or eight layers of war, one of which is competition Saudi, uh, U.S. versus Russia. Russia, he, he is trying to reassert <clears throat> the controls of the former Soviet Union, even without the territory. And for them, this has always been the soft underbelly. And the message he has projected, taking advantage of mistakes the United States has made or perceived mistakes, to say, you know, you may not like our positions, but we are loyal to our friends. And now you see he's going to be visiting Egypt. We see that he's been invited, that he, he's um, looking for invitations to other parts of the Middle East. And a very critical meeting took place in Moscow uh, just a, a week ago or so, and it got very little coverage here. If you look at the Russian papers, it got a front-page picture, and that was a meeting between Prince Mandar of Saudi Arabia who is the Minister for Intelligence, and Putin. I'm telling you, this is a game-changer. Hmm. And we will see consequences of this. This is not a haphazard thing, because the, the Saudis and the Russians have been long estranged. This is a change, and it is in part because of the West's failure in, in the region, and it's in part because of the aggressiveness of, of Putin, who's a very shrewd guy. I don't know how smart, but he's certainly shrewd in sticks to, to the directions that he, he sets, uh, often ones that we, we don't like. And Snowden is an overlay of it. And the fact that the president had to cancel the, the uh, trip yeah. uh, was, a, was a symbol of the, of the significance of this. Uh, One could argue that U.S. policy on Iran also contributes to it. That because of the what seems to us as a lackadaisical attitude toward the uh, the military, not the military, the nuclear buildup in Iran, uh, the the uh, the uh, the Russians see just how weak the United States is perceived against them. Well, I don't think Iran is uh, is the same kind of case. First of all, I think the United States has been stronger, certainly on the sanctions front, than anybody else. And you can point to Europe much more likely about uh, the reluctance with which they have come behind it. But the the impact was very evident this week in Iran of the sanctions and of the strong stand on sanctions and the fact that the United States has done these military exercises, sending messages, again, asserting that uh, they, the president will not allow nuclear weapons, Iran to have nuclear weapons, 
um, it was uh, told to us yesterday again by virtually everybody um, but you're right there was a message that's communicated that now you have Rouhani getting elected and all of a sudden his middle name is moderate <laughs> and this is a guy who wrote a book saying how he deceived how he lied how he when he was the negotiator how he obfuscated he, he is somebody who has uh, pointed to his cabinet which is being described, if you've seen the press, as technocrats or bureaucrats or whatever, they are, in fact, people who came out of the security sector, where he came out of, from the Ministry of Intelligence. It does seem to be a clash with guys with the Iran Revolutionary Guard, uh, but it's it's clearly an attempt to, for him to impose his people. They're not technocrats. These are guys who are going to continue the same policy that existed before. And the, the, the revelations about a heavy-duty reactor, which I talked about on this show months ago. I don't know why people all of a sudden are discovering the plutonium reactor could be active by next summer. They've been working on it for a long time, and 76 senators wrote to President Obama about the need not to be diverted by uh, Rouhani's uh, uh, selection. and you know He might put a different face on it, but the policies are the same. Let's see what he does. Right. Let's see if there is, in fact... Uh, some sort of a, a, a change in policy. Netanyahu said yesterday that 7,000 new centrifuges have been put in place just since June, a thousand of them the more uh, advanced. We know the base where they're training uh, Shiites to go into Syria, but they could go into other places as well. And the, the, um, the satellites show now a new ballistic missile site. So they're moving ahead on all the three components uh, which we've discussed, of, of a nuclear program. Enrichment, missile delivery system, and weaponization. So the idea that, that all of a sudden that this is a, a, a change is completely fictional. He had to be approved by uh, Khamenei, the supreme leader. The supreme leader still runs uh, what goes on. He pointed Zarif, the foreign minister, who was a Holocaust uh, Minimizer, I would say, if not denier. A justice minister was accused of being involved in, in mass murders. So this idea that he is, is and people searching and wanting to have some option with uh, Iran. If they want to negotiate, they know what steps they have to take. Now that Ahmadinejad is out of office, will there be less attention on Iran at the U.N.? There is less attention already because of Syria and Egypt, and it's one of the reasons why we uh, emphasize it so much now, because this is the number one danger. And it is moving ahead. Right. Thank God the members of the House and Senate have gone, and the House voted 400 to 20 to impose new sanctions. 400 to 20, including 106 of the 131 members who signed the letter, you know, welcoming Rouhani's election, essentially. It wasn't exactly, but in brief. So they get it, and they they see what the, what this what's really happening there. Right. I mean, but the attention at the U.N. will be much less. I'm not talking about uh, whether people no, are... The first speech, will everybody's going to hang on every word to see, and he he won't call for the destruction of Israel. So he will be invited to... Say a wound, uh, that Israel is a wound on the Islamic body, whatever, and then... So he will be invited to speak. That's already established. Yep. And we do we know if the Prime Minister of Israel with the Yuntif schedule will be able to speak at the U.N.? It is not at all clear yet. Because that he, he will come, and if he comes, that he will speak. But right now, you don't have a foreign minister who often could take his place. So, right. oh, good point. I think the likelihood is the prime minister will come. Uh, a couple of things, just uh, going back, and then we'll go forward. So, on the Putin uh, uh, um, President Obama thing, 
Uh, is it a generational thing? In, in other words, you, you said that Putin is now behaving uh, essentially without the without the geographic control. He's essentially behaving or trying to behave in the direction of the uh, of the old Soviet uh, leadership. Correct. So, uh, the, 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 so does Russia need you know new young leadership? Does it need a generational change or some other type of leader to come in? Or essentially, this is the direction that Russia is going to be going in because hey, this is the orientation of you know, the way things work on that side of the world. Well, I think Russia has moved uh, away from uh, the surge towards democracy that we saw. Right. Uh, he has put his own people in, uh, mostly KGB, former KGB, as he was the head of it. Uh, but he, they have specific interests. One of them is, and, and they are apoplectic about Chechnya and any kind of moves of radicalization. That's why he opposed regime change, because he's afraid that it could spread. Right. You know, Russia has a huge Muslim population. It has these territories. They are radicalized. They killed tens of thousands of people in Chechnya. The, and for them, the, the Middle East areas have been a, their soft underbelly traditionally, going back hundreds of years. They, they still, I think, are very concerned about uh, Turkey, for instance. They want also to reassert their, their role and so they look for any opportunity to, to be center stage and uh, demonstrate their commitment by blocking moves at the UN on Syria, blocking. Right. Moves but in theory, if there was a change of administration, would it get? Would it be much different? It depends who gets elected. Understood. But I'm trying to like. I mean, he also has big economic problems at home. He has uh, other difficulties. Right now, there's nobody on the horizon that would change things. Right. Uh, but it, that push to democracy, as you just described, is not really. It's not there anymore. And I guess I'm just wondering if there's any potential for it. You know, if somebody else. In well, fact, there, there, you remember there were big demonstrations in Moscow, and there was there is opposition uh, being expressed. But uh, right now, I would I would say he is solid. And going back to the peace process for a moment, I wanted to add the uh, the issue of the uh, the new settler homes that were approved. I apologize to everybody who hates the term, but I don't know how else to refer to it right now. Um, and there has been approval, correct? There has been approval for expansion in certain areas. Isn't it strange that Netanyahu is making such gestures and like the prisoner release to get everybody back at the table? Yet, of course, this becomes meaning the homes become such a uh, a big issue again. Well, any gesture, any move, and, and remember, this is not actual construction. This is just approvals, which right. take years to implement. Second, most of the construction, if not all, is within the existing footprints of the uh, of the of the communities. The ones that are getting approval that you've referred to are places like Gilo or in, in communities that that uh, uh, exist already and whose boundaries are clear. And these are areas that are going to remain with Israel in virtually all scenarios. Um, so it, it is not kind of, uh, it's not a slap in the face and, and some sort of a massive gesture. The Palestinians play on it, and it gives them cover that if the negotiations break, they say, oh, you see, it's because of settlements, not because of their uh, unwillingness or, or unreadiness to take the steps necessary to have serious negotiations when all these issues will be discussed. All, right. all these issues can come up. And I guess no matter when there's a construction approval, it's always going to be. An, an, and you remember when, when Joe Biden, Vice President yeah, of Biden course. was there and you had, a negotiate, you had an announcement. That was an announcement by a third-level 
Pakid bureaucrat right. who who just talked about a zoning process. Nothing was constructed until now. Nothing is constructed from that. Right. All right. We got to get to Yemen and the United States is a move this week to uh, start warning people about traveling to certain areas because of Al Qaeda threats. Uh, so first of all, tell us about Yemen because that was identified as the epicenter of these threats and activities. Right. Right. It's Zawahiri uh, ordered an attack. Uh, there are others now. There's one morning now in Pakistan and in Lahore that we're going to close our mission there. Um, this was a specific uh, chatter that was picked up, a specific uh, exchange. Yemen has always been a center of activity for al-Qaeda, always meaning in, in recent uh, years. Uh, we remember the attack on, on the USS Cole. There are real divisions in the country, north-south. It's a tribal society. It's one of those, quote, failed states. Uh, they did negotiate it. The UN uh, representative negotiated a ceasefire, a sort of agreement, had an election. Uh, but all the time, you've had ongoing fighting. You have the Houthis in the north, backed by Iran, who are fighting Saudi Arabia primarily, but in terrible economic conditions. The whole country is in terrible economic conditions. And it becomes an easy place. Iran has infiltrated Al-Qaeda, has established a base there when they were driven out of other places. Uh, this was known, and too little was done at the time. Mm. They are also in Somalia. Then we see Al-Qaeda rising in many uh, countries with independent groups like Al-Qaeda of Iraq, Al-Qaeda of, of the Maghreb, Al-Qaeda of, uh, of uh, Yemen. And there are linkages between them, and they do get communications from Zawahiri and, and others. When you refer to the chatter, you're talking about date, time, and place? Like actual details? There were actual, there were, this time there were specific threats to, to places. Did the U.S., did Washington overreact? No. Really? So no, they, I think they have an obligation to protect the lives of people who represent the United States. And when you have a specific request... I know, but it sounded like a general travel ban. Me? It sounded like a general travel ban. They weren't telling well, people. The initial announcement was, I think, a little over the top in oh, okay. of, of travel, but not the actions uh, uh, that they took. Because it, it, you know, afterwards, everybody will criticize and say, "Why didn't you put out the word? And why didn't you warn people?" Uh, I got a lot of calls from people who were planning. I can imagine, yeah, asking whether they should go to. I mean, it's August. You know, people are traveling now. Right. <laughs> I can only imagine. Um, what, when, when, and why does Turkey decide to intervene in Egyptian politics? What, when we see the leader of Turkey making recommendations about Morsi or what to do or what not to do, that is telling us what he's trying to uh, uh, give a perception that he's actually a larger leader in the Middle East than he is. He has sought it. He tried. He went to Egypt early on, and they told him to pack up his bags and go home because they know what it meant to live under the Ottomans. The, 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 the Ottomans, i.e. Turks, are still hated by many people because of uh, the Ottoman Empire, period. Second, uh, those who, who really want to move away and who are, feel threatened by Islamism and Islamist regimes recognize that Turkey is run by an Islamist regime. Yeah. He is an Islamist. And then no matter how much they try to sugarcoat or talk about the fact that he's still in Turkey's in NATO, etc., look at the direction that he's given the country. And many Arab leaders say it to me, and they say it with considerable anger. Look at the trial. He sentenced the chief of the army to life in prison, 253 other people. He's arresting journalists. I think Turkey has more journalists in jail than any other country. And they're not held to account. We still embrace him. We still... 
uh, I mean, I'm talking about uh, Erdogan, not the country. Right. Uh, obviously, Turkey is a strategic uh, country. It's very important. Things have improved uh, somewhat with Israel, although the the uh, tensions still remain over the Mavi Marmara and there's the threats of lawsuits, and they're bringing a case through the Comoros Islands against Israel in the international court, which hopefully will will uh, throw it, throw it out. But they have they tried to intervene there and in Libya and other uh, countries and were rebuffed. So he will look for any opportunity. He also asked to visit Gaza, and the Egyptians said no. They turned down Erdogan's request to visit Gaza and said, because of your backing of the Muslim Brotherhood in Morsi, we're not, you're not welcome to come. Not that I should assume that you read it, because I don't know if you're uh, attracted to read New York Times articles these days, but uh, there was one this week about the quote-unquote stone throwers and their frustrations with the Israeli army, etc. What do you think of the article? It's it's one of a series of mistakes that were made in the New York Times, but it's a pattern, and I think that uh, Ms. Ruderin, who's the reporter, uh, you know, they did do a correction afterwards, and they cited the fact that uh, the, the mistake was that they referred to the settlements as illegal, that U.S. policy is that it's illegal, and the correction said, well, the rest of the world sees it as illegal. <laughs> the United States just says it's an obstacle or whatever sure. the language is. It, but it is a major difference being, between being illegal and being a, an obstacle. And the... Um, uh, so that was one mistake. And then Tom Friedman wrote a piece where he said that Rabin had been killed by a settler and wasn't true. And then he said that Eric uh, Burdens, uh, who was boycotting Israel, when in fact he did the concerts uh, in Israel. But it's it's the attitude of the times on an ongoing basis, the slant, the distortions, and the misrepresentations, including photos that were not legitimate. And you hardly see a correction or a recognition uh, of mistake and the damage is done once the article right, of out, course the damage is done and the tone of the article was outrageous in general and just the and so uh, many other articles that have uh, uh, appeared there and, and continue to appear which artist did you just say with the, about the boycott Eric Burton Eric Burden. Um, finally, don't tell me who he is. Cause <laughs> finally, it took four years to uh, to get this Ford Hood trial uh, into 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 full gear, huh? took a long time to... It took uh, a very long time, and, you know, there were people who resented the fact that he appeared in full uniform dress and et cetera, and, you know, it's a platform for him to espouse his, uh, his extremist views, and it, it's, it, it should be instructive about how, how he became radicalized, wh- why, they weren't, uh, why people weren't tipped off, why there wasn't some sort of a recognition of the direction in which he was moving. Um, you know that this is part of the problem. Is it, it's, it's not just the issues. It's how do we anticipate? How do we uh, look a step ahead? And and, and it comes to uh, almost all of the issues that that one could deal with about how do we anticipate what uh, what um, the number two guy in the CIA talked about Syria. Well, we knew that he warned of the dangers that it's the biggest uh, problem. Now they're talking about foreign fighters. We talked about it for for months. What steps are being taken now? to make sure when these jihadists who come from by the hundreds from Europe, when they go back, they're going to be instigating violence, terrorism. The countries know it. I know that they're really concerned. It's one of the things that drives uh, Putin also is the fact that you have a couple hundred Chechens in Syria. These guys are being trained. They don't necessarily go as jihadists, but believe me, they're coming home as jihadists. And this is a... And the, the question is, what is the West doing? I know there are countries who are taking steps to make sure these guys don't come home. Right. But the, the um, 
you know, and, and you take every one of the issues that we discuss. Many of these things could be avoided if we if we would uh, take the necessary prophylactic steps. By the way, we, one of the things that we should mention is that the Air Force Chief of the United States spent a week in Israel. Now the Chief of Staff of the United States is coming there. The uh, joint exercises, both Naval and Air Force, were quite remarkable. The U.S.-Israel military and intelligence cooperation is escalating, and both sides tell me how uh, talk about it in glowing terms, and and, uh, that is an important prophylactic step. That sends a message that the United States and Israel are prepared to act, will act, are coordinating, uh, and and the, the significance is that it's not what we say or what we think here. It's what they think. What does the what does Iran think? How do they interpret the measures we take, the commitment we demonstrate? Are they going to continue to be feel they can move ahead with a heavy water reactor now, or with all of the other steps that have been taken, or they, or the Russians, or any of the other parties that that, uh, that we've talked about? All right, uh, we got to run. Two weeks from today, we'll reconvene. Reminder that the gala dinner at the Waldorf Astoria for the Conference of Presidents and their big 50th anniversary celebration happens on the 15th of October. Uh, information, gala2013 at conferenceofpresidents.org. Uh, Malcolm, uh, Nefesh Benefesh Monday. This is a unique opportunity for me, and I'm sure that you uh, join me in wishing hundreds of Olim a very special Mazel Tov. You know what it's like every single summer, and you've been on plenty of their flights. It's uh, going to be a remarkable journey, and we have to remember that the future of the Jewish people is in the state of Israel. Uh, and they do a great job. I'm on the board. I was uh, involved with Nefesh Benefesh from its inception, and it is it has uh, revolutionized the uh, approach to Aliyah. I, I hope that more people will take advantage of it, as you said. And the uh, I, I envy you this trip because it's it's really exciting. And when you arrive and the you see the Achdus of Klal Yisrael at a time when all we see is divisiveness, and I would hope that when uh, the people will think about that and the price we're going to pay for it, uh, and how they do it on as an individual level and as in a collective basis. Fantastic! Thank you so much. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Two weeks from today, our next weekly update: Erev Shabbos, Parsha Shoftim, with candle lighting at seven forty-four. Many synagogues begin earlier. Make sure you know when things start. Where you are, this time each and every Friday, every hour of Shabbos, with great pleasure, we present Rabbi Benjamin Yudin, spiritual leader of Congregation Shomri Torah in Fairlawn, New Jersey, to address the entire listening audience concerning the Torah portion of the week. Good morning, Rabbi Yudin. Good morning, Nachum. Good hour of Shabbos, everybody. Tomorrow we have the privilege of reading Parshas Shoftim. Parshas Shoftim, according to the Chinuch, contains 41 mitzvos, and many of these mitzvos are exceedingly important. You have in this parsha the mitzvah, seven mitzvos related to the king in Israel. And while we don't yet have kingship in Israel, we pray for the restoration of kingship every single day. We ask in the Shemona Esrei for Hashem to literally bring us the Moshiach and the Moshiach is going to be please God the next king in Israel you have in this week's parasha the important concept of the Torah giving its endorsement to the Chachamim 
And the Torah says that we are to listen kechol asher yorucha, all that they teach us. And it is for this reason that we have not only the 613 mitzvos from the Torah, but there are seven mitzvos midrabanan, and the opportunity or obligation for the Chachamim to institute mitzvos comes from this week's parsha of Parshas Shoftim. I'd like to focus, however, on the very first pasuk of the Torah reading, and the Torah says literally, Shoftim v'shotrim titen which means literally, both judges and officers shall you appoint in all your cities, Asher Hashem lokecha nosein lecha lishvatecha, which God gives you for your tribes, and v'shavtu esha'am mishpat sedek. They, the judges, shall judge the people with righteous judgment. Okay, let's take a look at one short Rashi. Rashi says on the part of the Pasuk, which says, Vishavtu Esha'am, and they shall judge the people. Rashi tells us, Mane appoint Dayanim Mumchim, expert judges, Vitzadikim, and individuals who are righteous. Now, I'd like to ask a basic question that the judges have to be qualified and have to be mumchim so they have to be clearly most knowledgeable in Shulchan Aruch. that is understandable but why does the Torah require that these judges themselves be tzaddikim that they shall be righteous and I believe that a very important lesson coming forth from this Pasuk and that is that our Torah is as we say every day in the Shemona Esrei it is a Torah Chayim it is literally a Torah which is alive and therefore it's not enough that the judge is able to adjudicate properly, but rather he himself, the judge, has to be a living example. He has to be a dogma ishit, a personal example as to how he lives his lifestyle, and as such, the people will be able to accept his rulings because after all is said and done, not everything is exactly stated in the Shulchan Aruch. But rather, the judge is going to have to be able to glean from all the testimony and the statements that are said before him and he is going to have to be aware as to what 
and in order to be most objective, to be able to see if there are any negius, if there are any literally influences which are happening, subtle influences upon both the litigants and upon himself. And therefore, the more the judge is self-disciplined, the more he has self-awareness about himself, then he is more capable of being objective and in judging in the best way possible. So, in essence, we now go from the literal understanding of the verse. If I were to ask you, to whom is this mitzvah directed of shoftim the shotrim titenlopa? That there are to be literally the appointment of judges, which clearly, according to the chinuch, this is the opening mitzvah of Parshas Shoftim, and it happens to be mitzvah 491, according to the Chinuch Lemanos, Shoftim Veshochim, to appoint judges and officers. On whom is this mitzvah? Your answer would be on the community. It's not a mitzvah on each and every individual. And in fact, the very language of Titein Lecha, you, in the singular, the Vilna Gaon points out very sharply that where the Torah couches the mitzvah in the plural, such as Usfartem Lochem, when it comes to the counting of the Omer, Ulkachtem Lochem, when it comes to taking the Esrog and the Lulav, so there the Alocha says that it's to be a Sphira, a counting, a Lakicha, a taking, Lachol Echad Viachad. So when the Torah uses the plural word Lochem for you, in the plural, it means each and every individual. However, when the Torah speaks in the singular, such as in Parshas Bahar, when the Torah says, and you shall count, seven Shemitahs, and then it's to be followed by the 50th year, the Yovel, this is not a mitzvah on any one individual, that's a mitzvah instead on the Sanhedrin, which is the collective body representing the Jewish nation. Here too, the first puzzle in this week's parsha, Shoftim Vishotrim Titain Lacha, you, the Jewish leaders, you the Sanhedrin, you have the responsibility of making sure that there are a court system within each tribe, within each city. But it's not on each individual. This is the literal way to understand the Pasuk. However, I'd like to share with you an additional understanding of this Pasuk based upon the Shalom HaKadosh. And he says, granted, what the Pshat is, now let's take a look each individually. And the Torah says, Shoftim b'shotim titein l'cha in speaking to each and every person. B'chol she'orecha literally in each of their personal she'orim gates. What are the personal she'orim? Says the Shalah that each individual has seven she'orim. And they are the two eyes, 
the two ears, the mouth, that's five, and the nostrils to make seven. What does that mean? It means one's sight, one's hearing, one's speech, the sense of scent. All these a person has to establish literally judges and offices or in other words a person has to control himself in these areas and when he is able to control himself in these areas then then that's what I believe Rashi is saying he will then be in a position to judge righteously because then he will be in the category of a tzaddik and then he'll be able to sort out in terms of negius, in terms of these subtle influences as he has self-disciplined himself so too he'll be able to be a better judge vis-a-vis others and so let's take a quick peek at what kind of judgment is required over these seven personal Sha'arim. The Alta of Kelm said so sharply, My goodness, whenever I get angry, I tell myself just to wait, wait just a few moments, I'm going to get my special shirt, which is designated as a shirt of anger. And I don't allow myself to get angry until I put the shirt on. Now, I don't have to tell you, sometimes he can't find the shirt, and even when he finds the shirt, until he puts it on, by that time, that's right, his anger has subsided. If only we had an anger shirt. If only you can buy for your best friend a birthday present. And what are you going to get them? An anger shirt. And what does that mean? It means that until you put it on, you're not going to be able to be angry. And what a gift that is because it's going to show you how when you just wait those few moments... Baruch Hashem, most of the time the anger will have subsided and you'll be in much greater control about yourself. And so it's true regarding that which we see. We see something and too often what do we do? We react immediately and we hear something and once again for these Sha'arim we react immediately and what do we do? We say something without having stopped first without having to think twice before we first speak. Because if only we would think before we speak, if only we would take the necessary precaution of shoftim and shotrim for that sha'ar of speech, wow, how much better the quality of our life would be because too often after we say something we regret it but we can't take it back and the damage is done only to try to do with time damage control this is Shoftim Vishotrim Titein Lecha personally we are now in the month of Elo, and clearly the Medrash tells us very powerfully 
the idea of bisman shiyeshdin lamata. When man polices himself down here, then ain din lamala. Then it is not necessary to be subjected to a severe scrutiny from on high. And this is something where each and every one of us knows in what area we need a greater sense of shoftim v'shotrim for our own personal uh, life styles. There's no question that not only is there so much good that we point out on a regular basis in the internet, but the lifestyle that so many have in terms of their job and how necessary it is, but it's so important to remind ourselves that each and every one has to be on guard constantly. And the fact that we are there on the internet on a daily basis for our work does not ever mean that our guard can come down. And this is the very important lesson of Parshas Shoftim, that not only in a broader sense is there a communal responsibility to make sure that there is a judicial system governing the Jewish people and that when there is a disagreement between Jewish people that we go to a Bezdin and that the institution of Bezdin should be uh, upgraded to have a greater degree of respectability within the Jewish community but we dare not lose sight of the very important personal lesson that each and every one of us is being deputized over their Sha'arim in order to affect the din down here, avoiding the din from upstairs. Shabbat Shalom to all. J.M. and the A.M. on a Friday morning. Thank you, Rabbi Yudin. Uh, those of you who uh, missed part or all of Rabbi Yudin's words, don't forget we have an archive section at jmandtheam.org. You could hear it at any point today. By the way, uh, many of you were tuned in yesterday when Randy Wartelski spoke with the folks at Rusty Brick uh, during her 3 p.m. Thursday show on our stream at jmnam.org. And we announced that based on that conversation yesterday, we have a big trivia contest coming up for a Rusty Brick prize, and that will be coming up before we leave the air today. At 9 o'clock, we will be doing that trivia question, inviting you to answer the question and to win a very valuable piece of... uh, Advanced uh, Appware, uh, W-A-R-E. Friday morning, J.M. and the A.M. on the Zerub Shabbos Parsha Shoftim. Candle lighting at 744. Many synagogues begin earlier. Make sure you know when things start where you are. Yael Katzman. Yael Katzman is Director of Communications at Nefesh Benefesh. And that's something that we're going to try to do Monday and Tuesday. And that's communicate with this amazing international audience the message of Nefesh Benefesh and the incredible spirit and excitement as hundreds of people Make Aliyah, uh, become Olim Chadashim, become brand new immigrants from North America to the Holy Land. We'll be on the flight on Monday from JFK to Ben Gurion, but even more cool for us is that we're going to be broadcasting at JFK Monday morning live with the Nefesh Benefesh staff as they get ready for a very big day at the airport. And then when we get to Israel, our Tuesday show will emanate from 
Ben Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv in the midst of all the hoopla and excitement as the welcoming ceremony takes place and we get to see firsthand what it's like for these incredible, historic Nefesh Benefesh flights. Yael Katzman, Director of Communications at Nefesh Benefesh, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you, Nachum, and good morning. I know in my circles it's the talk of the town. I've uh, spent the last 72 hours answering questions from people, family and friends, and obviously listeners, about this upcoming journey and how much people are looking forward to it. Uh, I, I guess for you it's sort of uh, old hat because you've been through this process so many times. You're used to the excitement and jubilation of a Nefesh Benefesh flight. I'll tell you, um, in a way, you yes, uh, you, you are used to the excitement. However, I think each flight gets more and more exciting. Um, to see the families, to see the soldiers, the potential soldiers, to see the children, um, uh, younger people, older people, getting off the plane, getting on the plane, the, 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 you know, the heartbreaking goodbyes and the exciting welcomes from here. To see a thousand people coming out at uh, four o'clock in the morning to greet the plane and make everyone feel so special. It's just incredible. Oh, the whole thing is, uh, I can only imagine what it's going to be like. By the way, is this a uh, a soldier-heavy trip? Is it a family-heavy trip? Is it a singles-heavy trip? How would you describe this Nefesh Benefesh flight? Well, this is a flagship soldier trip. Uh, we have about um, 125 um, young adults who are planning to volunteer for the IDF. Wow. Um, so it's definitely uh, one of our record flights. Um, however, it is a jumbo flight, so we are going to be seeing a lot of uh, singles and a lot of uh, children on the flight as well. Boy, oh Our boy. last flight uh, two weeks ago had about 106 children. Uh, this time we won't have as many children, but we'll definitely be seeing uh, lots of young families and um, singles as well as the soldiers getting off the plane. Is this the last charter flight of this summer uh, for Nefesh Benefesh? Yeah, so in fact, we're having, we have two charter flights a summer. Uh, we had one in July, and this is the August one. Uh, in total, we're going to be bringing about uh, 2,500 uh, new Olim over the course of the summer. We have uh, group flights literally around the clock. About uh, every uh, five, six days, we're bringing in groups. Um, we just uh, welcomed uh, about 50 or 80 uh, Olim from Canada two days ago, right before Shabbos. Uh, yeah, so it's been a really, really busy summer for the yeah. organization. Yeah, Al Katzman is with us live via telephone. Uh, interestingly, you know, when the, the when we started speaking about Nefesh Benefesh um, and and specifically this trip a few days back, uh, we mentioned that uh, Nefesh Benefesh is actually holding a seminar in New York City this coming Sunday designated for retirees. And I was pretty amazed at the reaction I got in terms of people who were interested in finding out exactly how to register, etc. Has the retirement population really started to uh, grab hold of the Nefesh Benefesh concept? Yes, we've definitely seen that, especially in the last, I would say, two, three years. Uh, we're seeing more and more uh, parents who'd like to follow their children who have made Aliyah with us or, or before Nefesh or Nefesh uh, was founded. So we're seeing a lot of uh, reuni- reuniting of families as well as um, just uh, retirees, uh, young retirees who decided they had a dream for a long time, they had a lot of commitments um, in the U.S., and they decided this was the right time for them. And uh, very often we see children coming after their parents. But uh, we're seeing a growing, growing trend 
of um, of older you know older pe- older members of the community who are making Aliyah. By the way, if you are in that population uh, and you want to be Sunday in New York City to take advantage of the information provided by Nefesh Benefesh, nbn.org.il, nbn.org. Dot il. It's going to be quite a scene. We're at JFK Monday morning. We're at Ben Gurion on Tuesday as uh, everybody starts their big uh, celebration as brand new Israelis. It is going to be quite a sight. Yael, one last thing. You know, years ago, and we really, really um, uh, uh, drew, uh, uh, paid as much attention as we possibly could to the amazing efforts of Nefesh Benefesh. One of the things that we emphasized was how so much of the Aliyah process was done on the flight itself. Uh, technologically, you guys had improved like crazy, especially in the very early years in terms of getting all that done. Is Monday's flight much different than those? Are things a lot different than uh, they were 10 years back when it comes to the actual procedures that I will see? Well, I'll tell you, I think it's even better. Um, you know, 10 years ago was 10 years. Technology has um, sped up since, um, and we've uh, modified a lot of our uh, our processing systems. We also have uh, full coordination with the Ministry of Interior and the Ministry of Immigrant Absorption. So together we've... We've um, we've uh, just um, expedited the process tremendously. That uh, I would say, whereas ten years ago, perhaps uh, it took uh, till the middle of the flight to to be finished with the processing. Right now, we're we're in the mode where you know towards the beginning of the flight already, we can we can have everyone processed pretty smoothly. Unbelievable, and that's a lot of people. There are a lot of people on Monday's flight. <laughs> Yeah, they're going to be about 330. Unbelievable. 330 new Aleem. I look forward to seeing you and celebrating so this, this amazing accomplishment. There are a lot of very excited... Well, you know what it's like, because you, you know what happens every time uh, you guys uh, film or, 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 or uh, do a live feed of the celebration in Tel Aviv. You have people all around the world who are listening. That's the feeling we're getting from our listeners, that they're just so anxious to hear us uh, you know, report on what's going on. It's going to be a very, very inspiring two days. Mm-hmm. Look, We're looking forward to hosting you guys and uh, and helping uh, all your listeners hear the excitement. A hundred percent. Hopefully, it'll encourage. Yeah, right. Hopefully, it'll encourage a lot more to head directly to the Holy Land. Uh, thank you so much, Yael. Shabbat shalom to you. Thank you, Shabbat shalom. Looking forward. Yael Katzman, Director of Communications. Now I'm starting to really get excited. See, now now I'm really starting. To, now I'm, now the momentum is picking up. Now the momentum is really picking up. This is going to be. Uh, this is going to be something. And that was a really short interview. <laughs> and I'm, already, I'm already revved up for Monday. Uh, we are looking forward. Boy, are we looking forward. Erev Shabbos Parsha, Shoftim, Jayim, and the AM. Oh, I did promise. I already posted on Facebook and Twitter, that, and I mentioned on the air, that we will ask that trivia question to see who was paying attention yesterday when Randy was speaking to the representatives of uh, Rusty Brick. Uh, and it's it's a pretty straightforward trivia question. If you're one of the first five people who answer the question correctly, you are a winner of the iPhone Cdoor app, which is the best Cdoor app out there, and it usually costs ten bucks in your app store. Uh, Rusty Brick created it, and Barry Schwartz and company have uh, have agreed to uh, give some of those as prizes to our listeners. And the and uh, by the way, the phone number you need a phone number, right? 201-209-9368. 201-209-9368 is the phone number to call to answer the question. The question, as Randy Wartelski would ask, is as follows. What is the name of the app that Rusty Brick recently created for Google Glass? What's the name of the app that Rusty Brick recently created 
for Google Glass. If you know the answer and you're one of the first five that, in fact, does know the answer, you'll get a redemption code, so you'll be able to get the brand-new iPhone Sitter app, a $10 value, absolutely free. A big thank you to our friends at Rusty Brick, and thank you to Randy for making this a very exciting contest. Friday morning, JM in the AM, again, the number 201-209-9368. If you know the answer to the question, what's the name of the app that Rusty Brick recently created for Google Glass? This is JM in the AM. Shalom Aleichem, Malache, Hasharet, Malache, Elyon. Mi Melech Malche, Hamlachim, Hakadosh, Baruch
J.M. in the A.M. with Yoel Sharabi. Before that, Lenny Solomon and company, a Shabbat in Liverpool. Well, congratulations, five great winners. I'll tell you, we have a lot of people not only who uh, were listening to Randy yesterday, but thought she did a great interview, and she did do a great interview. Uh, Randy spoke to the folks from Rusty Brick, and they are uh, ready to give away to, uh, and they have already, because we have the uh, winners here, uh, their uh, brand new app, their brand new Cedor app to five lucky listeners, the iPhone Cedor app. Is a $10 value, and we thank Barry Schwartz and company. The answer to the question of what Rusty Brick calls the uh, brand new app created for Google Glass is Jew Glass. That's what they've called it, Jew Glass. And listener Judy, and listener Janice, and listener Jacob, and listener Yussi, and listener Dina, and listener Uri, I gotta toss in there, uh, cause Uri and Dina are a pair. Uh, they um, they are all winners of the uh, redemption code that will get them that app absolutely free. So congratulations and thank you for playing along and thanks to Randy for coordinating another great thing for our audience. It's much appreciated. Uh, Matis will be doing JM Sunday. Don't forget Sunday at 7 a.m. in the morning on our stream at jmandam.org. Uh, Saturday night Seagull with Avrami takes place tomorrow night 10 p.m. Eastern time on the stream jmandam.org. Make sure to be tuned in for that. Saturday Night Seagull is a great show. I've Rummy hosted every single week. A big shout-out to our friends at Achenu Day Camp. I saw Rabbi Chester and Rabbi Pomerantz last night. After the big trip, they again have had a stellar summer for 2013. So Achenu Day Camp in Queens, a big shout-out to you and your leaders from all of us here at JM in the AM. Time to say good job is with Journeys at JM in the AM. Blessing on a cup that's filled with wine.
Our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WNYX Montgomery, Rockland County at 91.9 FM, around the world on the web, jfnam.org. Final reminder on candle lighting, 744, your candle lighting time on the Sarah Shab is 744. I got to thank the only person that's actually been working hard so far. I know that that's not true. Obviously, a lot of people are working hard, but you'll know what I mean in a second. The only person who's had to do a lot of advanced work on the spot in Israel, and that's PC Guy, who has been amazing over the last few weeks preparing for our big journey next week, and I'm sure will be amazing as he always is next week when we're in Israel. Thank you, PC Guy. Thank you, Miriam L. Wallach. Thank you, ZK. Thank you, everybody who has been working hard for this big journey starting on Monday. Make sure to be tuned in, everybody. It'll be an amazing show from JFK Monday morning with Nefesh Benefesh. Have a fabulous Shabbos. Great weekend. Till Monday, Nachum Siegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.